Praise the Lord. Amen. Let's all stand. Excuse me. What an awesome opportunity we have this evening to enter into the presence of God, to receive of Him all that He has in store for us today. Amen. I want to avail myself every chance I get to enter into His presence, to entertain His presence, to strive to enter in if necessary, to touch Him, to be touched by Him, to hear His voice, to feel His touch. Amen. We have an awesome opportunity. Most people tonight in the world are not getting this opportunity. They are not able to enter into the presence of God as you and I are so freely and so easily. They are not in covenant relationship with God like you and I. Thank God that we have a covenant relationship with our Savior, our Creator tonight. Amen. I am so thankful for that. I am so thankful for everything Jesus has done for me. Amen. Let's go to Him in prayer this evening. This is His service. I want to see His will accomplished. Not mine, not yours, but His. Amen. Lord Jesus, You're an awesome God. I love You. I worship You. I praise You. I laud and I magnify You this evening. Oh, hallelujah, Jesus. It is You that sits on the throne. It is You that is Lord and God in this place. This is Your church. We are Your people. This is Your service. We submit ourselves as one body to You tonight to receive of You all that You have for us. Hallelujah, Jesus, that You would speak, Lord, that You would minister to this congregation tonight according to our desperate need and according to Your perfect will. Hallelujah, Jesus. Hallelujah, Jesus. I pray that You would arise tonight and that Your enemies would be scattered, that You would be Lord and God in our hearts and in this place tonight. Hallelujah, Jesus, that You would minister, that You would bless, that You would encourage, that You would strengthen, that You would edify Hallelujah, Jesus. Help us, Lord, tonight to enter into Your presence. Help us to not take this opportunity for granted tonight. Do not esteem it lightly. Help us to give it its proper weight, its due consideration that we have been given invitation into the very throne room of God. Hallelujah. Thank You, Jesus. Thank You, Jesus, for all that You've done. Thank You, Jesus, for all that You are. Oh, hallelujah, Jesus. We desire to laud and to magnify You. We desire to worship and to praise You. We desire to offer sacrifice of praise tonight unto Him who is worthy, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Hallelujah, Jesus. We will worship and we will praise our Creator tonight. We will esteem You most high. Oh, hallelujah, Jesus, because You are Lord and You are God in this and in every place. Hallelujah, Jesus. Hallelujah, Jesus. I am so thankful for You and desirous of all that You have for us this evening. Thank You, Jesus, for Your manifest presence here tonight. Hallelujah, Jesus. Hallelujah, Jesus. You are worthy of worship. You're worthy of all praise. Hallelujah, Jesus. Hallelujah, Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Praise God. Amen. He's an awesome God. And I am so thankful for Him. Praise God. Thank you for standing. You can be seated this evening. Tonight we're going to look at the parable, we'll call it that, uh, of Lazarus and the rich man. We'll do a little scratching, a little digging, overturn some dirt, and we'll see what we come up with here. Amen. Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31 is where we find this account, this parable. And he begins by saying this. This is Jesus speaking. There was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus 
which was laid at his gate, full of sores, and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. And beside all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot. Neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. Then he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send him to my father's house. For I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Abraham saith unto them, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto him, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. Amen. It's interesting that some actually question whether or not this is actually a parable uh, or an actual account. Uh, the reason for that is that uh, in this, actual names are used, not just man or son. Also, Jesus isn't really drawing spiritual truths from allegory or common and ordinary worldly things like uh, the parable of the seed and the sower, for example. But he tells this as a narrative or an account of something that happened. Maybe, maybe not. In any case, uh, let's look at it and see what Jesus is saying here. This is told by Jesus immediately following the parable of the prodigal son. Which is interesting to me. He just gets done relating the great mercy of God. The compassion of our Savior. That no matter what we do, no matter how much of a mess we make of our lives, there's a chance to repent. There's a chance for God to make it all right. To make it better again. To fix everything that I broke. The mercy of God is awesome. The Pharisees, however, that were listening to him were deriding him a little bit. He was speaking to them about their worldliness. Now Jesus is going to sober them up a little bit with this account. God is actually peeling back the layers of this world and of this life and revealing to us, giving us a glimpse of the next, a spiritual reality. Not necessarily a type and a shadow, but he's, he's revealing to us some truths. The context of the account is, is between a wicked rich man and a godly poor man. Now, this was kind of an oxymoron to the Jews of the day. They had it in their minds that wealth and prosperity was a sign of God's blessing and God's favor upon you. We see an account in Luke chapter 18, verse 24 through 26. This is Jesus after He got done speaking to the rich young ruler. And when Jesus saw that He was very sorrowful, He said, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through, the, through a needle's eye than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And they that heard it said, Who then can be saved? They were a little surprised by this statement. They were a little shocked. Let's consider Father Abraham. The covenant promise was blessing. Right? 
But now we see Jesus giving us an account of the wicked rich man and the godly poor man. Interesting. Let's take a look at this rich man. Jesus never names him. Maybe on purpose. I don't know. Nevertheless, uh, he was never named. We read that he was clothed in purple and in fine linen, indicating some kind of royalty. Purple was typically indicative of royalty or some high office, high uh, government official. He fared deliciously and sumptuously every day. Everything, everything that the world had, everything that money could buy was available to this man. He had everything. His servants were well cared for, I would imagine. It seems that this individual was industrious. He managed his business with care and prudence. I mean, it's not like this guy was in an adulterous situation. It's not like we read that he was he gained all of this wealth through extortion or through oppression. It seems like he came about it legitimately. Doesn't read like he was a drunkard or a wine-bibber or anything like that. So what was the man's sin then? What was the problem here? To any of us, this would seem like a good old boy. A good man. He had all the trappings of success. He was clean, ordered. He managed his business well. He had a place of authority. What's wrong with that? There's nothing wrong with that. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. So why do we read about him in hell then? Well, this individual had a... I mean, this, this opportunity to minister to someone was wrapped, packaged, and dropped off at his doorstep. Wouldn't you like it if you opened the door one morning and ten people were outside? Would you please give me a Bible study? I'm looking for God. Wouldn't that be awesome? That's basically what's happening here. He has an opportunity to demonstrate the love of God. Now, I understand we're still in Old Testament law. Jesus hadn't died yet. I mean, there's no Christian church here. But the Old Testament law tells him to do what? Show mercy. We also see no evidence of any of that. He was not a good man. He was not a godly man. I have no doubt that he was a church-going man, if I can say it in modern terms. Went to synagogue. Kept the law. I have no doubt that he did all of that. But his heart was far from God. He demonstrated no fruit. We cannot infer from one's financial blessings or struggles that God either favors them or has turned away His favor. We can't tell just by looking at someone's life and what they're going through whether or not this is a godly person or no. That is the poorest indication of spirituality we could come up with. We may as well ask the man's goat. Is your, is your owner spiritual? We'd get a better answer from the goat than a man's finances. We judge them by their fruits. 
And as a warning to us, the source of our joy ought not consist in these things. The abundance of wealth or worldly possessions. More accurately, we should view these things as a test. More accurately, we should view these as a temptation. Riches and financial blessing is awesome, isn't it? It's nice not to have to worry about your finances. And I know I sound a little facetious. I probably am a little facetious here. But on the other side of the coin, it's true. Who, who loves to worry about their finances? No one here likes worrying about their finances. So isn't it nice to have $100,000, $300,000 in the bank just sitting there for a rainy day? Wouldn't that be nice? Take care of a lot of stress in, in your marriage, wouldn't it? But financial blessing can also be a very dangerous temptation. In all things, church, we need to view things in light of the eternal, in light of the spiritual. These things are temporary. They're temporal, meaning temporary. They are going to leave you at some point. I promise you that. I promise you from Scripture. It may take until you're dead and gone. But that money that you worked a lifetime for is no longer yours. It's divvied up to, yeah, maybe your children, stepchildren, aunts, uncles, the church, someone, not you. You're not taking any with you. This temptation, this financial blessing, these riches, they will more often than not cause an individual to forget God and to leave off depending on His goodness and on His grace. Now, I'm not saying it has to be like that. I'm saying, statistically speaking, knowing human beings as we know them, the more self-sufficient we become, the less God-sufficient we need to be. When everything's going great, let me put it this way. I don't know for sure. I haven't spoken with any of you concerning this specifically. But I would wager cash money if I were a betting man. I'm not. But if I were, I would wager cash money that your best times in prayer, your most powerful times in prayer, were in the middle of a storm, in the middle of a test. Very few people can muster that kind of spiritual energy and fervency and passion when everything's going great. But when things are falling apart, that's when we need Jesus. That's when we need to meet Him right now. And that's when we press in and we touch the hem of His garment. When we have a desperate, pressing need. When we have no need, we can worship we can thank Him, but the urgency just isn't really there. Yeah? So, again, statistically speaking, more often than not, the more self-sufficient we are, the harder it is for us to draw close to God. The more difficult it becomes for Jesus to be able to work through me the way He wants to. Again, doesn't have to be like that. There are Christians... Solid Christians who have money. No doubt. There are also Christians who were solid until they got money. And now they're not anymore. So let's just look at this from a spiritual perspective. Riches are not always a blessing. They can be. They can also be a temptation. Great resources will more often than not be the cause of distraction for us, getting our eyes off of God's kingdom and onto our own kingdom. More and more of our time will be dedicated to managing and allocating our great wealth and our many blessings, and less and less time becomes available to use for God. I have seen this happen 
at least once. People come into the church broke, desperate. They start paying tithes. God blesses them according to Scripture. And blessing, 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 blessing. And pretty soon, their church less and less and less and less because they got more to manage and they got vacations to take and they got stuff to look at and they got stuff to do. They would have been better off staying struggling and needing Jesus. More and more of our focus and mental energies are dedicated to our estate and less and less is available to the kingdom of God. It becomes easier and easier to focus on the pleasures of this life because more and more of them are now available to us. And we're less and less eager to sacrifice and to endure hardship for the kingdom of God. We are commanded to endure hardness as a good soldier. But when we get used to ease and comfort, that becomes difficult. It doesn't take long either. How many days off of work does it take before you're really dreading going back? doesn't take very long, does it? No, not at all. It doesn't take too long being at ease in Zion before we're not wanting to go back to the front lines. We are more often tempted with the sins of pride and arrogance the more successful we are in this life. Once again, it doesn't have to be that way. But we're trying to look at this from a spiritual perspective. It's a warning. Let God bless you. Let God multiply blessings upon you. Absolutely. But just beware. Don't start worshiping the blessings. Keep worshiping the God that gave you the blessings. And that can at any moment take them back. It's not the blessings we're worried about. I'm not concerned about the blessings. I'm concerned about serving Jesus. I'm concerned about doing those things that please Him. We begin to focus more and more on ourselves, what we have and what we don't have, and what we're going through, how we're feeling. And we lose sight of the fact that others around us are in need of our ministrations. And I think that's one thing that Jesus is trying to point out to us here. This man's life was a life full of luxury and pleasure. He was greatly respected. He had a position of great authority. And then he died. And will now experience an eternity of torment and overwhelming and unmitigated want. Contrasted to that is the life of Lazarus who is named, obviously. He's introduced to us as a poor beggar. He possessed nothing in this life except perhaps the rags on his back. The Bible says he's full of sores. He was sick. He was malnourished. We read about sores a little bit in the book of Job. The dogs came and licked them. He took a broken potsherd and scraped them. The sores we're talking about are oozing. They smell. They're disgusting. There's nothing pretty. There's nothing redeeming about this. They're just disgusting. And they're very painful. His meager and irregular diet would ensure he stays in this state of weakness and sickness perpetually. The Bible reads that the dogs came to lick them. Now, Jewish tradition associates dogs with uncleanness and even violence. It would not have been a happy occasion to have dogs come and comfort you. Not in Jewish society. That, in fact, would have been one of the final plunges to the very bottom of the social strata. Lazarus received his food from the mercy and pity of others. He was fully dependent 
on someone else for his daily bread. He had no means of income. Having sores on his body would have prevented him from going into anyone's home. So he would need to rely on others to bring food to him. The Bible says he resided at the rich man's gate. The gate was representative of the rich man's power and authority. This was a mighty man. A man of means. And if you're going to be dropped off at anyone's house, may as well be this guy's house, right? He has the most to give, and he'll miss it the least when he does. Seems like a logical choice if we're looking at it that way. Lazarus desired to be fed from the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. These are things the dogs would have licked up. If any of you have or have had dogs in your house, you've probably snuck a little bit to them underneath the table. You know you're not supposed to, but you did it anyway. <laughs> but I don't know of anyone, I'm sure there are people that do this, but I'm not, I don't know anyone personally that lets the dog eat at the table. I don't know of anyone that does that. After having all of this happen to someone, you would think, and we would probably forgive Lazarus for just expressing a little bit of frustration, a little bit of discouragement. We don't read any of that. No, I understand it's, it's a parable and... We're not getting the man's life story. But if you'll permit me to, to read into this just a little bit. Lazarus being a godly man. We don't read him about him complaining. He accepts what is happening to him stoically. He accepts it. I can imagine even thankfully. This is the man who had the big picture in mind. This is the man with an eye toward eternity and lived like he had an eye toward eternity. This miserable man was a contented man. He didn't complain. He didn't raise his voice. He was content. So here we see two men. One man destined for hell, sitting comfortably in the house, eating to his heart's content and enjoying all of this world's pleasures and an air of heaven, lying at the gate, dying from hunger. So what was the rich man's sin? Lazarus was never abused by him. Never told he couldn't sit by the gate. Never did Lazarus any harm. His sin was indifference. He didn't care. He walked by Lazarus, going and coming. He saw Lazarus. I'll demonstrate later, he knew Lazarus by name. And yet, he did nothing. Would it have hurt his huge bank account? To give him a meal every now and again. To let him live inside the house somewhere. He wouldn't have missed any of that. His sin was indifference. He never noticed Lazarus couldn't bring himself to care about him in any sense of the word. What recommended Lazarus to heaven? I would submit... Again, reading into the text a little bit. His patience in the midst of hardship. His contentedness with what was provided. What God had provided. Patience in the midst of hardship is a hard-won lesson, church. 
It's a hard-won lesson. I was wondering if I'd be able to work this in, and now I see how I can. A book was lent to me, uh, Brother Willoughby, and toward the end of that book, there was one statement that, that really kind of popped at me, that most people in the church are more concerned about relief than restitution. Or, I'm sorry, restoration. That's why I should have wrote that down somewhere. People want the pain to stop. Whatever the cost, whatever the means necessary, just make the pain stop. But God's process is something else entirely. He's in the business of restoration. The analogy was given in the book about restoring old vehicles, old cars. You don't really know what the cost is going to be. You don't really know what's going to have to be worked on until you start stripping it down. Someone who is a professional can make it look good on the outside, but as soon as you pop the hood, you're going to see a pile of rust. Or you can strip it all the way to the frame. I would submit that's exactly what God wants to do is to strip us all the way down to the frame and restore us to His original intent. What was originally intended. Until then, we are not going to be patient in the midst of hardship. We're going to beg for the pain to stop. And if we do that, church... We are, as the drill sergeants always said, you're only cheating yourself. You're only cheating yourself. The rich man occupied an exalted position far above Lazarus in this life. In the next, Lazarus occupied the exalted and favored position, and the rich man was cast down. Again, Understanding that their positions in this life lasted but a short while. What is our life? The psalmist asks. It's but a vapor. We're here today and we're gone tomorrow. And then we're cast into eternity. And whatever we've done in this life, that's what we carry over to the next. None of our possessions, none of our titles, nothing. Just what we've done, who we were. That's what we carry over into the next. Their positions in this life lasted but a short while, in the next, for all eternity. We read that they both died. We know this from experience and from reading the Scriptures that death favors no man. Death has no favorites. doesn't matter how young you are or how old you are, if you're black, white, blue, purple, scarlet. It doesn't matter if you grew up in Africa or grew up in the United States. It doesn't matter. Nothing nothing about us matters except that you're a human being and one day, said the Lord, Terry, death is going to claim you at some point. And you don't know when. Only God knows. In death, we all stand as equals. The President of the United States is going to stand just as tall as the homeless man on the street in death. They're going to be equals in the sight of God. Death, however, does mean something different depending on your spiritual condition. The death of of the saints is seen as an end of our labors and suffering in this life and an entrance into our eternal reward. I don't care what kind of pleasures you experience down here, and we do experience pleasure from the Lord down here. We have the earnest of our inheritance. We have a relationship with Jesus Christ. We are truly blessed and highly favored in this life. But compared to what what awaits us in the next, this is misery. This is torment. 
These are afflictions, although they are light and they last but for a moment. They are afflictions nonetheless, compared to our exceeding and eternal weight and glory, the reward that awaits us in the next. That's how we see death. The death of the sinner is quite a bit the opposite. It's the end of their pleasure and happiness and the beginning of their eternal sorrow. Oh, but preacher, not everyone has a good life. Well, that's true. There's a lot of misery out there. There's a lot of pain and suffering out there. But compared to what awaits them in eternity, they are experiencing pleasures. They are experiencing the best life has to offer. If you can imagine that. Again, an eye to eternity puts these things into perspective. If we can see the eternal in light of the temporal, we can understand that whatever happens to us, the people of God in this life is nothing. It doesn't matter compared to what awaits us. And what awaits the sinner, it doesn't matter how hard and desperate their life is at present. It's way better than what waits them in hell. Rest assured, church, hell is a real place. It's real. Just like heaven is real. Their funerals, I can expect, were quite a bit different. We don't read about their funerals. But Lazarus, in the position he was in, probably it was someone's chore to bury him in a hole somewhere so that the dogs didn't eat him. The animals wouldn't gnaw at him. I can imagine they were glad when the chore was done. That was his graveside funeral. I can expect probably no one came to mourn him. No one eulogized over him. He wasn't really missed. The rich man, on the other hand, I can imagine, had a grand funeral. Was laid to rest in state. Had a big monument. Whatever the Jews did back in the day. I'm sure he had it. Grand eulogies. Professional mourners following the, following the procession. Wailing and weeping. I talked to one guy a while ago. We were talking about our, our funerals. I was like, I'm, I'm going to have a, some kind of a party, a celebration, you know, something that people can enjoy. He's like, not me. I'm going to have it in my will. I want, I want 50 professional mourners. I want them wailing up and down the street over my loss. <laughs> I think he was kidding. I hope he was. <laughs> but it was funny nonetheless. Anyway, uh, I'm sure he had all of that. The orator is praising his accomplishments, his character, the wealth he left behind, his business, all of that. It was a grand, I can imagine, procession. When Lazarus died, he was carried by angels into Abraham's bosom. Now Lazarus would begin to enjoy the fruits of his faithfulness. His death was honored more in the next life than the rich man's was honored in the first. We see here, of course, a stark reminder that physical death is not the end. It's a transition. That's all it is. It's another stage of our existence. This life is in preparation for the next. This life qualifies us for our position in the next. That's what this life is. The angels, I see, were not afraid to touch Him anymore. The sores that were on His body, they didn't carry over to His soul. The sores were gone now. The suffering was gone. The torment was gone. The shame the disrespect was gone. The Jews expressed the happiness of the righteous at death three different uh, ways. 
One is that they would go to the Garden of Eden. They would refer to it like that. Another way they would phrase it is they go to be under the throne of glory. And the third way they would, would phrase it is they go to the bosom of Abraham. And that's what we see being used here. In heaven, we're going to meet saints who had lives very different than ours. We are going to meet saints who were very different people than us. We are going to see saints from all walks of life, every area of the world, every period of time. We're going to see all of them. Black saints and white saints. Rich saints and poor saints. Respected saints and despised saints. Saints who lived for God their whole lives and saints who had deathbed conversions. Famous preachers and faithful saints who knew no one and no one knew them. We're all going to be equals. We're all going to stand the same way before Jesus. It doesn't matter as long as we're faithful to God, as long as we're faithful to His plan for our lives. It doesn't matter. Nothing else matters. That's another thing that took me a long time to figure out. Nothing else matters, church, except what we do for Jesus, our obedience to Him. The rich man died and was cast into hell. After his grand funeral, after the many accolades that were laid upon him, after being interred in such a regal burial site, his soul was cast down into hell. Now he's in a state of torment and misery. I said before, this place exists. There are a lot of people today, there are a lot of Christians, so-called, today, who desire to eliminate this place from existence. I might be tempted if I had the power to do it, but I'm not God. I'm not the righteous judge. I haven't figured all of this out. This place exists. This place is real. And God doesn't send anybody there. He doesn't send anybody to heaven either. He makes the way possible. He's the only one that does. But that's our choice. We choose to go to heaven. We choose to go to hell. I promise you, people aren't going to just wake up one day and say, Oh, I made it to heaven. Oh, how, how awesome is that? I wasn't expecting that. No one's going to do that. You're going to make it there by choice. You're going to make it there on purpose. And those that are in hell and will go to hell are there by choice. They rejected God's salvation. They rejected His substitutionary sacrifice for them. How could a loving God send people into a place like this? Have you ever heard that? To be fair, from their position and level of knowledge, that's probably a fair question. But when, when you look at Scripture and when you understand the character of God and what He's done for us to make sure that we have the choice to go to heaven if we want it, all we got to do is say yes. That's it. We don't have to hang on a cross and die. All we got to do is tell Him yes and serve Him. That's it. That's, that's too much for some people. They cannot submit themselves. They will not submit themselves. They could. They won't. In hell there are miseries and torments without remedy and without end. And you're there by choice. 
The rich man looks up and sees the happiness and bliss of Lazarus. He sees them afar off, enjoying an eternity of bliss and joy, while all around him are others who chose hell over heaven like he did. He sees everything he truly wants in the bosom of Abraham, but instead will endure eternity where he is at present. And here's something that scares the snot out of me about hell. This scares me more than anything else. There will be no self-delusion when we stand in the presence of God. There are people out there who are convinced that God doesn't exist. They're convinced that their lifestyle is perfectly fine. And there will be no judgment. There are Christians out there that are convinced that they can live in sin, they can live however they want, and God is just fine with it because Jesus loves me. Yes, He does love you. But you're not going to heaven that way. He loves you enough to fix you, to change you, to transform you into Christ-likeness. There will be no sin in heaven. And I don't care how much you hope and how much you delude yourself and, and talk yourself into something else. God is the standard. God is the judge. And if you're living contrary to that, you're wrong. You're dead wrong. And you'll answer for it someday. It doesn't matter what you've, who you've surrounded yourself with. Oh, yeah, yeah, you're good to go. Yeah, you're fine. Yeah, Jesus loves you just like that. He does love you like that. But again, He doesn't want us to stay there. He wants us to, be, he wants us to reflect Him accurately. He wants us to demonstrate Him accurately to this world. We can't do that looking like we are. The way I came to God, thank God that man is dead. Thank God. I thank God every day of my life that man is dead. I thank God for where I am today. But I don't plan on staying here. God's going to keep moving me forward. He's going to keep transforming me and reshaping me and molding me so that I look more like Him tomorrow than I do today. That's my desperate hope is that God does exactly that. I want to look like Him. I don't want to look like this. I want to reflect Him. But there are people out there convinced convinced that they're okay. When they stand before the judgment seat of Christ, they will not be convinced anymore. All of that self-delusion, all of that insanity is gone. It's gone. And they are going to come with the stark realization of truth. I'm not okay. I'm guilty. And there's nothing they can do about it anymore. There's nothing. The ark door is closed. The time of mercy is done. This dispensation is shut. And they're going to realize with full clarity and full understanding I'm guilty before God and I'm going to hell for all eternity. They're going to know it. They're going to realize it. No matter what kind of deluded, deluded thoughts or, or imaginations they had down here, that's all going to go away. The knowledge that heaven was available to you, you said no. Because I wanted to live the way I wanted to live. I wanted to do it my way. I imagine he remembered the rich man, how he thought about Lazarus, if at all, and how Lazarus is now in heaven in a preferred state, exalted in a preferred state over him. This would serve to make his present state all the more miserable. We observe their state of separation. There's a great gulf fixed between heaven and hell. There will be no interaction, no communication, and in reality... 
No way to observe the other side. One side is completely closed off to the other. There will be no communication, no information exchanging from one to the other. They are completely and eternally cut off from the presence of God. That is the second death. Once we arrive at our eternal destination, there's no way to pass from one side to the other. It's no longer the business of those in heaven to worry about those who are in hell. Think about that for a moment. Our duty to the lost is today. Our duty is now, at present. When we die, and we're in the presence of Jesus, our job is done. Whatever we did or didn't do, it's done. Our responsibility here is done. Whoever is in hell is not our responsibility. Not anymore. It's not our job to worry about them. We're going to have other responsibilities in heaven. Other tasks. That's not one of them. Our business will be to attend to Jesus Christ and to worship Him. To attend to all of those other responsibilities that He gives us. The final judgment is final. It's fixed, permanent, unchangeable, eternal, forever. And those who are in hell will forever know that their judgment was altogether just. It was just. And they're going to live with that knowledge for all of eternity. The rich man addressed Abraham as Father Abraham. The man, by all indications, had little to do with the heart of the law in his lifetime, but now he's going to show reverence and respect to those aspects of religion that he disdained in life. Father Abraham. In this day, those that mocked and ridiculed the people of God are going to be very happy to claim some acquaintance with them in the next. Those that rejected Christ will, in that day, desire desperately to worship Him and to give reverence to Him. But it will be too late. The rich man complains of his torment. I am tormented in this flame. The rich man cries out to Abraham. He cries out loud. He cries earnestly. This man that used to be in a place of authority, this man that used to command others, who was used to being obeyed, is now begging for relief from the torment of this flame. He cries much louder than Lazarus ever did at his gate. We see here that the fire in hell is real. The torment is real. The regret and the agony and the misery and the condemnation, they're all real. And they're going to last for all eternity. He cries, have mercy upon me. It's too late. There's no more mercy available. Not now. He's dead. He's gone to His reward. Those that spurned God's mercy, those that mocked it, those that spat upon Christ's sacrifice at Calvary, will one day beg for it. And it's going to be too late. They're going to realize that that day, all of this is true. I was deluding myself. But it's too late. If you consider the Noah's flood, when God shut the ark, it didn't matter after that. Five minutes ago, the door was still open. Anyone could have come into the ark and be saved. Anyone. You know what the requirement for salvation was? 
Get into the ark. That was it. That's all you needed to do, folks. And you'd have made it. Five minutes later, it was too late. The ark was shut and the rains came. He wasn't crazy. He was preaching the truth. Okay, I'm ready to come in now. Noah didn't shut the ark. He can't open it. God shut the ark. And He's not opening it. He gave you 120 years. How much more time does someone need? We can't tarry when we're seeking God's mercy. We've got to seek it while it may be found. If anyone needs mercy, it's still available. The door is still open. All you got to do is come in. Come into the church. That's all you have to do. Mercy is still available. Who knows when it's going to be shut? No man knows the day or the hour. You've got to seek it while it's still able to be found. He wants Lazarus to come in with some water and relieve his torment. He who never showed mercy, never showed one iota of interest to Lazarus in his lifetime is now begging for mercy from Lazarus. Send Lazarus down to help me out here. What did you do for Lazarus? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. He didn't ask for deliverance from his torment. Perhaps he was beyond hoping for that at this point. He asked for the smallest thing he could have asked for. Just a little water on the tip of my tongue. That's all I want. He calls Lazarus by name. That's how I know he knew who Lazarus was. He didn't say, send, send the dead beggar down. Send Lazarus down. He knew who he was. He knew him by name. And he let him sit there in his boils and in his sores and in his hunger, and he did absolutely nothing. Abraham tells the rich man to remember. Maybe that will be the biggest torment of all. Remember how that in life you received your good things. God blessed you and multiplied unto you every good thing. Remember how you believed them to be your possessions and not God's. Remember how you refused to give God glory or even thanks for them. One man said it this way, He became the grave of God's blessings where they were buried when He should have been the field of God's blessings where they were sown and multiplied to others. He experienced the length and breadth of God's mercy in this life and He treated it as profane. He esteemed it lightly. He took it for granted. Abraham also says, remember that Lazarus received evil things in his life. Although he patiently bore every one of them. It's probable that if the situation were reversed and Lazarus somehow came into wealth and the rich man were cast into poverty, Lazarus probably would have helped him. Even though he received nothing from this man. I don't know if that's true. But I think it's, I think it's probable Abraham brings him back to the present. Basically saying, yeah, that was then. This is now. Now he's comforted. And you're tormented. His final request of Abraham was to send Lazarus to my five brethren. Let him tell him of my torment here. This is an interesting conversation. And I'm just about out of time, so I can't go into it too much. But, the rich man wants to send someone back from the dead. Presumably his brethren know Lazarus as well, having visited, gone in and out of the gate, etc. They see Lazarus come back from the dead, they'll know something's up. They'll know to listen. Abraham responds, that's simply not true. I think Jesus was trying to get a point across here. Jesus had confirmed his ministry by many signs and wonders, and still 
the Pharisees and the Sadducees could not believe him. They couldn't believe him for all of the miracles. His testimony was confirmed, and yet they couldn't believe him. Amen. The rich man and Lazarus. We need to take this. Hell is real. Heaven is real. People are going to go to one of two places. And it's their choice which one they go to. There are no good men, good women out there. They're saved and unsaved. That's it. The people we think of as respectable and church-going and, and they're clean and all of that, hell's going to be populated with them people too. Some of us need to get the blinders off of our eyes and realize that there's only one way to get to heaven. That's it. There's one way. There's one choice. That way is narrow. It's straight. And few there be that find it. But it's our responsibility to let people know what that right way is. Because their nice clothes and their fancy cars and their attendance in church isn't going to save them. Their giving to charity isn't going to save them. The blood of Jesus is going to save them. That's it. If they don't have that, they're damned. If they don't have that, they are going to go to hell forever. They have an opportunity today, just like we do, to say yes to Jesus and go to heaven when it's our time to go. Amen. Thank God for the blood of Jesus. Let's all stand. Lord Jesus, You're an awesome God. I am so thankful for You and for Your so great salvation. I so very much appreciate. I love. I worship my Savior, my Creator, the lover of my soul. I am so thankful for Your mercy, Your daily mercies. I am so thankful, Lord Jesus, that You paid the just punishment of my sins, that You gave me a choice. I didn't have a choice. There's no way I could save myself. There was no choice. But You gave me a choice. Hallelujah, Jesus. I am so thankful. I will forever be thankful and grateful to You that You paid the price, the just punishment of my sins Yourself and for all of mankind. Thank You, Jesus. Bless Your people, I pray. Minister to their every need. Bring us back to the house of God at the day appointed. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for your attendance here tonight, your kind attention. By way of remembrance,